Hi, I'm Stuart Clark. I'm the SVP of Content International at Deadline, the leading website for everything and anything to do with the film and TV industry. And I am contractually obliged to say that, but I also think it's true. So uh, please check out Deadline. I'm sure you are already. Uh, welcome to Industry Insights, the EFM podcast presented by the European Film Market of the Berlinale. The year-round podcast is produced in cooperation with the Goethe Institute and co-funded by Creative Europe Media. The EFM podcast puts a spotlight on industry issues and key trends. And today we are talking all things drama. We've got an absolutely fantastic lineup, so I'm going to do quick intros and then we'll get into the conversation. We have Marina Williams, co-founder and co-CEO of Asasha Media. Prior to co-founding Asasha, Marina was COO of International Operations at Endemol Shine, and before that led Endemol's operations across Central and Eastern Europe and the Middle East as regional CEO. Uh, she's also worked at CME and launched channels in Europe for Fox, Turner and others. We have Guy Bissod, who's co-founder of Ampere Analysis. Guy is a seasoned entertainment analyst and commentator and speaks at key events around the world. Uh, I'm not sure where you are today, Guy, but I know we're, we've met at various places uh, around the globe. And Guy's a commentator on all things television, the content side through to the business. And I think Ampere, it's fair to say, has become a, uh, a go-to for must-have industry insight. Another go-to for industry intelligence is K7 Media. And we're also joined by Richard O'Meara, who's K7's Head of Drama and Insight, heading up their scripted team. He has worked for close to a decade, helping broadcasters, streamers, production companies, distributors build and refine their strategies. And of course, we can't have this conversation without a dedicated producer in the room, or rather on the pod. And we're very lucky to have Lars Herber with us, who, having been in the drama department of DR, left the Danish broadcaster with Pubanth to establish Apple Tree Productions. It's got on to make shows including Blackwater for SVT and ARD, Equinox and Baby Fever for Netflix, One of the Boys for Viaplay, and Chorus Girls for TV2 Denmark. So, to the conversation. Uh, Guy, I think we should come to you first to help to help set the scene, if we can. So today, we're talking about drama, and obviously, it's an enormous topic. There are so many places we can go there. Is it even possible, when you think about 2023 and the world of scripted television, to kind of think about the macro trends? What, what, what kind of defined the business last year before we get into 2024? Well, the challenge, of course, is knowing where to start because there was so much going on in 2023 that was changing the market almost on a weekly basis. We we actually picked up towards the end of 22, so in the last quarter of 2022, a downturn in scripted commissioning activity, particularly in the USA. So this is well before the Hollywood strikes, for example. Um, what we were seeing was a reaction to the macro trends in the economy and in terms of consumer behavior. Um, of course, Netflix had had a bit of a shock with uh, subscriber losses um, for the first time, and they were beginning to pull back on content investment, or at least the speed of content investment. Um, the studios very quickly followed suit, and that pullback really led to a retrenchment in terms of activity around scripted commissioning content. And then, of course, we had the Hollywood strikes, which kicked in um, into, in into the second quarter of the year and continued, of course, 
through most of 2023. So a massive amount going on. Guy, can I just home in on something there? Because I, I think, unless I'm mistaken, the kind of the notion that that uh, commissioning started to slow down felt very much like something that came through in 23. But you're saying you detected that actually back end of 2022. Yeah, we put out a press release in the first months of 23 um, talking about the downturn that we were picking up on. Now, this is commissioning activity. So it's really a, a sort of window into the future a little bit. Um, and we were already picking that up in 22. And it, it really was a reaction to what was going on in the wider environment. And of course, we had economic challenges as well starting to pick up around that period, which also impact um, and a, a cost of living crisis uh, in many parts of the world that also affect. And we had the end, the definitive end of the COVID boom that had served streamers so well, um, that was well and truly over. Uh, and I think it's easy to underestimate, and we kind of put it to the back of our mind, the importance of COVID in taking us to where we are today. Because another thing that it did was it gave them a free ride for a period when perhaps they should have been evolving business strategies um, in some of the ways that we're now beginning to see because they had the boost from COVID, those evolutions didn't occur. And when we talk about a slowdown in the amount of drama that is being ordered, is that across the piece? So is that everything from your legacy broadcasters and your public broadcasters right through to the streaming services or is, is it different per each kind of segment? It's pretty much across the board. It's fair to say that the streamers are leading the downward march, if you can say such a phrase. But yes, we're picking it up across the board. It's not specific to any region, um, although the US is particularly impacted. But then we do have that uh, secondary effect of the strike and a tertiary effect, which has been ongoing now for some years, of the internationalization of streaming content. So the US is no longer the be-all and end-all of entertainment production that perhaps it was 10 years ago. Marina, could I bring you in here? Because it's fascinating to hear Guy kind of break down what's happening at a global level and those big macro trends. But you you kind of, you live in that international business. You're at all of the markets. I wonder what your sense is and, and how you felt 23 was and how you feel as we move into 24. Asasha is a pan-European studio, and this is how we designed our company when I founded it with two partners, Gaspar de Chevignac and Marc-Antoine de Luin. Our idea was actually to predominantly capture um, European studios productions, and we launched the company from Italy, moving into France and UK. Um, so we are not really dealing with the U.S. market that much um, unless it's UK co-pro with U.S. Uh, so to reflect on Guy's, you know, uh, notion, I, I agree that the impact of the crisis have been predominantly reflecting on the streamers and most likely on the U.S. commissions. So we are, we are kind of working in European, uh, uh, you know, trenches. So... We are quite successful because our and our year was fantastic because our pillars of our commissioners are actually broadcasters like BBC, Rai, 
you know, France Television, uh, Canal Plus, we do have streamer business as well, but actually we didn't see the downturn in Europe, for example, in our Italian commissions, Netflix is our very big partner uh, in Italy. And uh, we have uh, not only TV series, but uh, also TV movies and movies commissioned by them. We also launched a new uh, series in France for Amazon. Um, but I have to say that uh, obviously the UK market have been impacted more so, uh, mainly also on the talent and the writing side due to the strikes. Uh, whenever, you know, we wanted to access uh, top-level US talent uh, for some of our more, I would say, premium productions, it has been challenging. Do you sense, Marina, because it's interesting, you reeled up a number of partners there. Some were commercial broadcasters, some were pay TV, some were streaming companies. Do you sense that if we think about the streamers, that they are a little cooler than than perhaps they were in the past in terms of the volume of orders when we think about drama? I don't see that in Europe. I don't see that with Netflix or Amazon in Europe. You know, Disney just entered and... You know, we are we are lucky because, uh, let's say, Max, you know, is just about to launch. So that's actually new money coming into European markets. So Max is launching in, in France in the middle of 2024. So that's something to look forward to. So we are realistic but positive on the 2024 outlook. Lars, let's be realistic but positive where possible. Uh, I think those are good watchwords. Um but but tell me, as a producer, I mean, you you make content for the streamers. You make you make you co-produce. You make stuff that clearly travels as well as working on in your domestic kind of territory. But but just tell me, what what, what does it feel like now, early in twenty twenty four? Do you feel a degree of uncertainty, or do you do you feel cautiously optimistic? Or let me not put words in your mouth and and just say, <laughs> what, what what does it look like to you at the moment, Lars? Well, we had even we had some add-on difficulties. Then, uh, on top of those that uh, Guy mentioned before, we in Denmark we had our rights crisis in 2022, when the rights when the uh, creatives decided that they wanted more money, much more money for their rights, and which led to nobody commissioning anything for a whole year. And this was followed in 2023 by Viaplay, uh, essentially going out of commission, so to speak. They have not commissioned anything now for a year and a half. And even, you know, as you know, now they're being taken over by uh, Canada Plus and uh, PPF. And we're going to wait to see what happens with that in the future. But it meant that our output or the commissions in the Nordic Territory have been almost halved over the course of uh, a year. So it's been dramatic times, uh, but good things happen too. We have new players on the field, Amazon, Sky Showtime. Uh, Disney are still here, and of course Netflix is a very staple uh, commissioner in the Nordic Territory, and the broadcasters are still ordering. So I'm cautiously optimistic to choose, you know, one of your positive uh, notes. See, but thank you, Richard. I remember, I, I think, think post MIPCOM, K7 did an analysis of what was actually selling. Can you, can you, can you tell us a bit about that? Because the thing about the sales is they, they're tangible. They, they really happen. So just, just give, if you could break down what you found after like the, the biggest TV market in the world, that would be super. Yeah, well, and, and this is something we're tracking all the time is what actually is selling outside of those 
the really big streamer stuff. So the stuff that's selling crime, obviously, predictably still the best seller, but with us now on the kind of plateau of this peak peak drama, people are looking in crime for a way to stand out and kind of be a bit different. So we've got stuff like, you know, diverse protagonists, and whether that be female protagonists or the shows like All Three Media's Detective 24, which follows a Somalian uh, refugee and a Swedish prosecutor kind of teaming up to solve, solve the murder of the migrant community, which has been a really, really big seller. Crime with a family element, crime with a supernatural element. We've also done a million detective shows, but trying to trying to go go a different direction with that. Um, period, maybe on the wane now because I don't know if, if people have the kind of budgets to for these amazing sets and costumes and stuff. But period still selling very well. Uh, royal drama, um, World War II set drama, anything kind of in the the second half of the twentieth century selling really well. Of course, factual based stuff selling very very well as well in the uk obviously the the biggest show the start of this year has been uh mr bates versus the post office which is kind of about a a local scandal here to to do with the post office anything kind of in that factual based realm from ukraine we've seen those who stayed which is based on true stories of ukrainians fleeing the war fleeing from kiev and then shows like estonia about the the cruise ship sinking um in the 90s has sold really 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 well as well so anything kind of factually based but but yeah still people after crime people um period drama selling very well factually based stuff it's interesting richard he break it down kind of in those sort of sub genres if you like because when we certainly when we think about factual, then then true crime just seems to just just when you think it, it can't become any more popular or dominate schedules anymore, it seemingly does. But it feels is is that influencing drama taste or is or is in fact perhaps the factual true crime a kind of cheaper way to get the same audience hit, I wonder? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, yeah, kind of traditional true crime about, you know, the, the cops chasing down a real life serial killer still um doing very very well but it's yeah it's interesting as you say the kind of the factual space influencing the the scripted space and um these big documentaries we're seeing um for example like sports space docs um i think that's influenced the scripted space um as well lars i can see you nodding does that does that resonate with what you're hearing when you you get in the room with commissioners uh, it's slightly different, I think, from a smaller territory like the Nordics. Um, but yes, crime is definitely still the easiest uh, content to finance. And it seems also to be the best-selling uh, genre, especially. And and Marina, with your with your international, Euro- European-centric, but international perspective, does, does, that, does that chime with what your execs are hearing in the market, kind of? very much crime fact-based kind of influencing decisions well we are we are across both drama and factual productions as you know and in drama i would say while crime is still in demand but it's a different type of crime from our point of view so we can see that um and i and i'm sorry to say it but Lars maybe will confirm but internationally it seems like distributors and commissioners are not looking so much for very dark noir you know, and uh, has something really hard. They're actually looking for, I would say, soft crime, or we have the terminology inside the group, we call it cozy crime. So, which means that people, you know, like to solve their criminal cases, but at the same time, they can relax in front of TV. It's not too tense. And there's an example 
it's Death in Paradise, you know, which is in 13th season now on BBC One, and it's performing extraordinarily well, uh, bringing over 7 million viewers. And to confirm that that genre is really leading uh, for us and in UK uh, for the viewers, you know, we launched um, a series called uh, Beyond Paradise, which delivered 8 million viewers. So, which is um, crime in UK, uh, but again, not not necessarily murder, by the way. And I can see that in factual, um, the type of crime around, I would say, fraud is is becoming uh, quite successful. And we we had a success with a commission by TVX in UK of the show called Bell Gibson. Um, which was based on a true story, a true crime story of a young fraudster, social media girl in Australia. So I would say that's a type of genre. And from what we hear, actually, the streamers are looking for less high concept. It was a lot of high concept requirements over the last couple of years. But to us, it sounds like now it's going more mainstream. And this is something that our company does really well. And if we move across to to other markets like Italy, you know, our best performing show is really incredible because it's actually a juvenile prison. So, yes, it's kind of crime, but it's not really about solving crime. It's about survival of those young people who either, you know, become criminals, uh, not necessarily by choice, quite often by circumstances. And, and their survival and their dreams, uh, you know, to survive through through prison years and dreams of release a new life. Marina, cosy crime, this is a genre now. Do you think that, that cosy crime is a reaction to there being a lot of really very dark news when you put the news on? And perhaps you could say this at any point in time, but Death in Paradise is, is you know, it's a beautifully produced show. I think it'll be coming up to 100 episodes soon. Is it that, and I, and I mean this, I mean this respectfully, but is it that it's it's comfortable viewing? Yeah, I I, I agree with you totally because you know, unfortunately, their uh, situation in the world doesn't look so wonderful and bright, you know, with what we can see in politics and um, and people just want to relax sometimes, you know, they want something positive in front of them. Um, so I think producing more uplifting content for the viewers, that's probably something that really I would love to do. <laughs> and Lars, I, I have to bring you in here because I kind of think of you as being, and, and DR and Pew as being in the vanguard of, of something that certainly wasn't cosy crime, that kind of, that noir piece that was kind of, it was, well, as the name suggests, it was very dark, but I wonder if, if locally, whether you're seeing a move to something, to kind of themes and tones that are perhaps somewhat lighter. Uh, yes and no. Uh, my partner, uh, Pew, um, uh, produced the original The Killing, and I think that one, that show defined that term, Nordic Noir, first time for some reason. Uh, and of course, it's uh, it still it still works as a uh, maybe a financing gimmick or a marketing gimmick. I'm not so sure it sells so much to the end user, but uh, but there are uh, new variations coming up. I think on that, like Blackwater, is a very dark cry, of course. And the reason why you can finance something like that, I think, irrespective of like world trends, is that 
It's a Swedish story. It's based on a very popular and very well-loved Swedish novel. And uh, it's been, uh, people have been trying to, to finance it and produce it for many years as a feature film or a TV series. And we finally made it. And it became extremely popular in, in Sweden and in the other Nordic countries and in Germany as well. AID was our, our partner on it. But we can see it's not selling, you know, fantastically around the world. So I, I, I think you're right, Marina, but it means that uh, you can still finance stuff because broadcasters are looking to tap into local IP that may be more or less dark. But then once you hit beyond the borders with that product, it's a different reality. But I also think we are talking, you know, about like glo global. It's difficult to talk uh, global, global all the time because, uh, you know, local demands are also quite different. And and while, you know, I'm saying, yes, you know, cozy crime like in UK, for example, is working so well for us. I'm sure if there is a solid thriller with very good talent, thriller will work. People will still watch it. So, but also it's about territories. I think Southern Europe is very different from, let's say, Nordic territories and Germany. So we also have to be mindful, you know, in which territories we produce and for which clients, because clients also have different demands and they have different audience targets or objectives. And, and I also believe, you know, that it depends what's in the library, like if Netflix was commissioning or had on the slate for a while, a lot of, uh, you know, thrillers, maybe they need more general entertainment, maybe another streamer which is coming to the market, Max, will need more thr thrillers because they're just entering Europe. So I think everybody is also slightly in a different situation in terms of positioning and needs apart from their consumer demands. So it's, we need to watch, you know, both sides of the I would say angle. Yeah, I think there's always going to be that balance, isn't it? Isn't there? There's going to be one people who want to switch off and watch some, you know, case. You know, by the end of the episode, the case is solved, and it's um, there's often a comedic element. But then I think, obviously, um, there's that people want to watch the darker stuff as well. Let's be cautiously optimistic. But in a challenging market, is there an increasing need or desire to work from existing IP? Does that help? Does that help when you get in the room with head of drama at Netflix in a given territory or a local broadcast? And perhaps, perhaps Lars, perhaps this is one for you in the first instance. Well, we have for many years uh, since we started the company, we want we would like to have a recurring uh, crime show because it's uh, it would be very you know comfortable to have a show like that running for years and years. Obviously, that only works if you have some IP to base it on. So we have uh, developed uh, various projects based on very well-known crime IP. And I think in this genre, it's, it's not so dark, so it's a lighter genre. But surprisingly, it's not so easy to get off the ground, even though it's very well-known IP. But uh, so I think some streamers, they like an IP to base it on, because it, at least it's something to base their decisions on. Uh, it's not my impression that, that Netflix is overly concerned about whether something is IP or not, for instance but others are. Richard, I know you've looked at IP. Uh, sorry, Marina, go on, you go. So, sorry, I just wanted to say that um, I, I think what's more important for uh, for the commissioners is actually the scriptwriter attached. Yes, if it was a bestseller book, it's fantastic, but we find that the the writer and also the cast attachment is is probably sometimes more important than the existing IP. And actually, Death in Paradise is not a book, and it's 13 seasons now. So, 
uh, it's very well written and working really well. So yes, it helps to 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 bring a IP, but I don't think this is a key uh, prerequisite for success to get a commission. Richard, what does your work say around IP? Because I know we, we spoke about this previously. Yeah, I'd agree with Marina. It's you know it's far from vital, but just in in terms of sheer figures, I think um, so in. 2021-2022 season in the US, 42% of new US launches were based on some kind of IP. And I think the rest of the world wasn't far behind it, about 28%. So I, d- I think it's it's far from vital if the talent's there and the, and the writer's there, then, you know, a good idea is a good idea. But, you know, I think in we're now getting into increasingly kind of risk-averse times. And if an idea has been shown to work in a different medium, whether that be a, a novel or a film or a spin-off from an, an existing TV property, obviously that's going to be reassuring to commissioners. And then obviously we're seeing the big US studios pull back all this IP and, and kind of retake ownership of that. So obviously it's very, very valuable to them. But yeah, and especially with novel adaptations, we're now seeing these a lot of these, uh, these big book releases snapped up by producers before before the books even even published so so yeah i'd I'd say ip is definitely very very important guy can we can we take a step back because i'm curious to get your sense of how drama let's let's think just about svod's streaming and pay tv where does drama fit in the content mix in 2024 is having kind of prestige or a certain volume of drama a key way to attract subscribers or reduce churn, for example? What is the kind of the business case if you're sitting, you know, if you're putting the numbers together for a, a big streaming operation for investing in scripted? Well, there's no question that the big global streamers are scripted-led, i.e. the majority of their activity is in scripted commissioning and origination. Um, that is starting to change, um, and it began to change about five years ago when they started to move much more heavily into unscripted. Um, but scripted is still the driver. It's still what um, creates the headlines, uh, what pulls in the subscribers, which is still important. We're just in a situation now with streaming where we've moved from a pure customer acquisition at all costs situation to a customer retention strategy becoming equally, if not more, important. And that is affecting what is getting commissioned in terms of both scripted and unscripted. So uh, crime that we were talking about earlier is very, very important for an older demographic in particular. Because the streamers are saturated in many markets, Growth is coming from two areas. One is geographic areas that are not yet saturated, so Asia, Middle East, Africa. Um, The other is demographics that are not yet saturated, and that means the over 50s. Um, And they tend to enjoy crime um, even more than everybody else. Um, And other types of content like factual, for example, so documentary, especially if it's around musicians or sports stars that they can relate to. So all of these moving parts are impacting the position of drama and scripted, but it is still, especially in streaming, by far the most important uh, genre for commissioning. And and Richard used this term earlier, and I know it's a beloved of uh, 
some US execs when they kind of go into sort of crystal ball gazing mode as to you know when did we have we reached peak peak drama is peak drama will we ever get there tell me give me your take on on peak drama yes or no well our data certainly suggests that peak tv or peak drama whatever you want to call it is is over um and it's it's as i say it started towards the end of 22 it was confirmed during 23 even abstracting from um the the big downturn created by the hollywood strikes um not to say in any way that it is unimportant not to say that there isn't still plenty of activity um but that absolutely sort of free money almost that was flowing into the industry during the phase when the studios had entered the streaming market, Netflix and Amazon were going full tilt in terms of commissioning. Um, and everyone was trying to compete for this acquisition of new customers. And to go back to COVID, we had the opportunity to experiment, for example, with theatrical releases straight to streaming because of the lockdown. You would never use a theatrical movie for customer acquisition unless we had had that opportunity created by streaming. All of that is over and retention has become more important and you can retain customers. In fact, one could argue it's better to have a lower cost reality TV show that drops on a weekly or, or even better, maybe a daily basis than a drama that drops as a box set. So just to be clear, not saying in any way that trauma is not important, but we've seen we've got a strategic shift that is creating um, an impetus for other types of content as well. Richard, what's your take in terms of uh, in terms of that peak TV piece as we kind of sit here early in the year? What, what where do you see see us going in terms of the volume of drama commissioning this year? Well, yeah, I mean from. We're tracking at K Seven. We track um, commissions, and commissions have, have definitely fallen. And I think we've for sure seen the end of. For me, a big a big show that kind of signalled the end of all this was um, the Rings of Power, which was sixty to one hundred million dollars per episode from from Amazon. Which per episode, that's more than I think all three of Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings films, which is just insane. I, th- I think we've definitely seen seen the end of that. So I think in terms of budgets and, I mean, in terms of just sheer commissions, so in, in the first half of 2022, um, in the UK, there was 70 new commissions. In the first half of 2023, there was around 40. So um, just in, in terms of numbers and in terms of the amount of money being spent, I think things have definitely fallen. But is that a good thing or is that, is that, a, is that a bad thing? It, I don't think it was ever, sustainable to to be spending that much on on one hour of tv so I, i'd agree with guy that kind of end of 2022 start of 2023 is is where this this peak happened and now i think we're in a kind of phase of re- resetting and people um taking stock and seeing where we're gonna go from here lars uh Guy said something interesting that I wanted to pick up with you, and I say this because I know you you have a background in film and you understand that that business very well. Um, when the streamers kind of perhaps launch, instead of they might have a limited theatrical launch, but can launch movies in a different way, it almost changes the definition of a film somewhat. And I wonder if you, you know, drama producers have the requisite skills 
contacts and such like is is and also I guess the other the other factor is perhaps some of those huge Hollywood franchises don't generate the same level of box office as before. Is there, is there an opportunity in independent film, perhaps, for, for brilliant TV producers? Yes, absolutely. Uh, especially Netflix and the Nordics have started uh, commissioning original movies and have had quite a bit of success with them, but not enough that it's a separate business. I just think that, uh, you know, from our perspective, we are on the lookout for ideas that may not be able to to fit a whole series. It's, you know, the idea is not big enough or... If, uh, it's maybe better served in a shorter format. And for that format, we don't see think there's any real difference between making a film for a streamer or a uh, or a TV series. It's just a very short TV series, so to speak. And the, the other thing that strikes me, and, and Lars and Marina, this is a question for, for you two in particular, is that if the financing is challenged and a kind of an obvious way or perhaps a necessity is to think more and more about co-production both of you both of your organizations kind of the companies do do that have we got to kind of a moment where i mean i've been writing about tv for a very long time as you could tell from my aged looks listeners won't know this but it's true um and i remember there was a moment when co-production was done not always done very well and the results were felt essentially you having so many voices at the table that what you ended up with was not always, but sometimes you lost the vision of the original creator. Do you think that co-production strategies have evolved to the point where now it's a really viable creative solution? Uh, Lars first and then Marina to you afterwards. I'm not sure my experience is, uh, is, is enough to speak so broadly about this area, but I can say that Blackwater is a co-production with ARD in Germany. And what uh, what Sebastian, the commissioner from from ARD, was interested in was not so much German element, uh, which are not in there because it did fit the story. But he was very interested in making sure that the story was developed to its fullest potential, because then he felt this would work best for ARD. But I know other German broadcasters. You know, basically Nordic Noir is usually co-produced with German broadcasters or Arte or a French broadcaster. But I know there are German broadcasters who have different levels of of, uh, of collaboration. They have co-productions, and for that they need certain German elements, depending on the story, whatever fits into the story or can be shoehorned into the story, so to speak. And a different level if there are no German elements. And I have a feeling that it's still the good old thing. You know, if you do what's right for the story, it will work best for everyone. Marina, what, what's your take in terms of in terms of how co-production has evolved over time? I think that we should probably differentiate between co-financing and co-production because it kind of a different approach and pre-sale because <laughs> there are projects which work maybe as like Lars said, you know, let's say Scandinavian Nordic, so they work very well together. And um, quite often on the very solid uh, thriller, um, and I find this with UK as well, so not necessarily you need to have a strong editorial line leading into another territory in order for you to get a pre-sale and package financing uh, from outside. So you you could look at a situation where the project comes from UK, but it's pre-sold in, in, in Germany. But... Uh, this is less money than co-production. If we talk about uh, proper co-production, it's it's never easy 
I have to say, because uh, editorially it has to work for um, several markets at the same time. It's actually very interesting. I love doing co-productions because I've done my first big co-production project in cooperation with Plano Plano in Spain uh, this year. It's a thriller, actually. It's called Cicatrice. And it's the first ever co-production we pulled between uh, Spain, Serbia, and now Poland coming on board. Interesting example because the editorial line actually mm, is predominantly Spanish, so there is not a lot of action happening in Serbia. But what was prerequisite for a commission there that we use some of the Serbian cast and we found the talent for lead, who is incredible, and she learned Spanish while we were doing financing. <laughs> and um, we also managed to to uh, get Canal Plus uh, on board in Poland. And what was interesting for them, so obviously the story has to work for everybody. So the story just on its own, so it's a bestseller book, it's a, it's a solid thriller, it's a, it's a solid writer who did several episodes of Money Heist. So the credits of this writers, and when you read the pilot, so everybody was like, this is great. And then, and then the second step was, how do you make it relevant to your market? So in Poland, we made it relevant because we also casted the very big Polish star who is playing CEO of the IT company, and he's of Polish origin, even though he's American. So it's like several elements which had to work without jeopardizing the the key editorial line, if you see what I mean. So we'll see. It's coming to screen the first quarter of 2025. Super, thank you. Um, we're, we're running out of time, so what I'd like is just to kind of work around the, the room it is it is crystal ball moments in terms of drama what will be the defining trend this year that's the serious question and the fun question is what is the show you are most looking forward to and i'm afraid guy you're getting the least thinking time because you're going first um so the trend for 2024 is retrenchment i'm afraid um not catastrophic to retrenchment but a rationalization of the approach to investment in all forms of content. And the show you're looking forward to is? Well, the show I'm looking forward to is one I've got in my head, um, which I think is uh, a killer concept. So if anyone's interested, uh, get in touch. I'm going to buy Lars and Marina a little thinking time by coming to Richard next. Well, I think the biggest trend this year is going to be, I think... As, I've, as we've, as I think we've all agreed that peak t- peak drama has peaked, but there's still a hell of a lot of TV out there between linear and between all the streamers. So I think the the big trend this year is going to be kind of hybrid genre drama. So kind of we, we've all seen a million detective dramas, we've all seen a million period dramas, but kind of you know adding elements of these different genres um together to kind of to kind of make something um new and fresh. You know, if you think about shows like uh, White Lotus, it's hard to kind of put it into into a into a genre category. And I think that's why it kind of stood out so much among the, you know, hundreds and hundreds of other um shows out there. So I think that's going to be a, a way a way to make what's old new again and um add kind of new wrinkles to these kind of tried and tested TV shows. And off the top of my head, 
maybe what I'm most looking forward to, I think it might come out next week, actually, is um, Masters of the Air from Apple TV, which is from the the, the team behind Band of Brothers. So Steven Spielberg and, and Tom Hanks produced that one and um, kind of a, a follow-up to, to Band of Brothers and those other great World War II um shows and as as we said period drama is still still red hot so i think that's gonna that one's gonna be really really um really really popular this when it comes out later this month good stuff thanks richard and for our listeners this is completely unfair because i didn't warn people that i would ask them about the show they were looking forward to that said Lars, we first of all we need defining trends for this year and then we need the show you're looking forward to all right well, from a Nordic perspective, I, I have a feeling that we're going to see a 2024 where the streamers are going to be more and more interested in co-productions, i.e. in not fully financing shows out of the Nordics. And the television stations are going to be less and less willing to share windows with them. So I think we're, we're going to be in for some difficult times in terms of making that work for everyone. I've just finished watching The Diplomat on Netflix. And I think that's uh, that's an example of a uh, sort of old-fashioned, very well-crafted show, very intelligent plot lines, great cast, very well told. You know, I just couldn't not watch it episode by episode. And I don't often get that feeling anymore. You know, sometimes you have to drag yourself through all six or eight or even more episodes of a show. So I'm wishing for more... Uh, well-crafted, well-thought-out, uh, you know, the old-fashioned kind of uh, shows where uh, there's not too much money, there's just the right amount of money, and they don't they spend the they spend the necessary time writing, uh, you know, great scripts and uh, getting a good director who doesn't misuse uh, what can be done in front of uh, you know in a computer afterwards, which just makes really good well-crafted storytelling more of that thanks Lars that, and that, that's I think if I'm hearing you correctly you make a, an interesting point there that money doesn't always equate to quality does it no I mean oh, Jesus Christ I've watched another I watched a, a show a film on I won't say which streamer the other day with a very well-known uh, action star in the lead and you were thinking why are we all so worried about AI I mean, the screenwriters who wrote this piece don't deserve a job. Put an AI to do it. It's much cheaper and it'll likely be better. Thanks, Lars. That, that's, <laughs> that, that is, that is a, an, an interesting take on AI. Um, and Marina, you, you've had the most thinking time, so you're, you're going to be ready to go with your defining trend and the show, the show that you are looking forward to as our, as our final contribution. I think defining trend will be, if we're talking about streamers, to come back to the companies and talent that they know, because I think they will be risk averse. And on the budget side, I think, uh, you know, there, there will be some high quality premium dramas, but not a big volume. So I, the most likely, you know, it will be a lot of windowing. I support Lars. I think there will be a lot of regional commissions versus global. So there will be less in retention of global rights and more focus what works for the territory and how it can be co-financed with, with other territories. And I think we will see even different streamers who we thought originally are biggest competitors, even working together with each other across different territories. 
and and also splitting windows across linear and um, you know S word and A word even more so than before. And I'm maybe not a typical viewer because I do actually like thrillers and. I look forward to see continuation of Hijack because I like Edris Elba. <laughs> and I watched the first season and there was a very big cliffhanger at the end. Super. <laughs> that was really interesting. Thank you so much. It was it was a big topic and we I think we kind of went local and and global and it was just four four different um perspectives. Uh, and, and thank you so much. It, it was fascinating. It was, it was really, it was really a treat to to speak to each of you. Thank you, Stuart. A pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Nice to meet Take everybody. Care. Likewise. You too. Bye bye. Thanks so much to my guests. I hope you agree that was a fascinating conversation. And this season of Industry Insights is produced in cooperation with the Goethe Institute and co-funded by Creative Europe Media. The episode has been developed in partnership with Deadline, where I work and which I wholeheartedly recommend. And, and please do tune into future episodes of Industry Insights. You find us wherever you get your podcasts and on the website of the European Film Market, www.efm-berlinale.de. Thanks for tuning in. Goodbye.